Welcome to this episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. This episode is something new for us. I get to interview one of the authors who wrote an essay for us, uh, which can be found on our blog, Essays for King Jesus. Uh, We're also releasing an audio version of that. So I've got Kyle Stoltz, who's with me today. We're going to be discussing topics related to the principalities and powers. Kyle, if you could just give us the full official title of your essay. Yeah, sure, Marlon. First of all, thanks for um, thanks for following up this way. You know, writing has its own form, but in this way, we kind of opened up uh, oh, some new issues to explore just from what I wrote, and so I'm, I'm excited about it. I think if I'm remembering perfectly well, at least the, the, the first part of the uh, the article title, it's Seeking Better Vision. And, and what I'm doing in the article is some historical work, but also I'm just talking about how we approach history as Anabaptists and uh, just assessing some of the limitations that I felt in some of the histories that I've been able to get into and tangle with and some of the ways of doing history that we've done as Anabaptists and, and suggesting something of an alternative and that alternative, I'm suggesting the continuity here is Christ, and the continuity that we can have with the Anabaptists is Christ's victory over the powers. And that's that's what that's what vision we're after here. But it's a little bit of a playoff of Harold Bender's The Anabaptist Vision. I like that. Comment first on format. I think there's something powerful about what we're doing here because we value the written word, right? You've written an essay. It can be dissected, analyzed. It's there. Uh, it also provides a basis for conversation that can go a lot of places. Yeah, and it's one of the limitations of written word as, as much as I like it. We see it online, but we're used to consuming quite a lot of it. This is at least one way to try to clarify some of what's going on and maybe put a little bit of a face to, to the author as well. I, I like that. So as you heard in Kyle's description, um, this is an ambitious piece taking on the subject of the principalities and powers or you might know that New Testament language, depending on your Bible translation, as the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and then also talking about how we understand Anabaptist history and the reign of Christ and all of those things. Um, So let's jump in here. Uh, My first question, Kyle, would be, just give us some backdrop. What do we mean when we talk about the principalities and powers? And then along with that, Why does that language seem foreign, hard to understand for some of us in the 21st century? Uh Uh-huh. Well, two really big questions. And uh, the best I could try to do here is just to introduce a few things. And that's what I'll try to do. I'll try to introduce them, I guess. Uh, So we talk about them in language of principalities and powers. I'll just say the powers, as far as the reading I've done many times, you can just say just the powers, and that, that tends to incorporate what we talk about when we talk about principalities, too. I'm just noting here that, you know, the biblical world, when we encounter it on its own terms, it's a really lively place, and you start to encounter these these powers that have names. They're described, and they're named, and they have identities. They're personal beings with names like the sons of God, okay? There's the heavenly council, uh, and there's the heavenly council that does things like in, in the book of Job, they're presiding over certain activities that are happening on earth. They're celebrating when creation happens. Uh, in Psalm 89, there's the Prince of Persia, which is in Daniel. Um, and then there's his counterpart to the Prince of Persia, who is Michael. These are both powers. There's unclean spirits, there's demons, there's angels, authorities, basic elements of the world. Some of my 
favorites in the Old Testament, there's the chaos monster called alternately by like Rahab or Leviathan. And then there's just these kind of transpersonal natural forces like um, the great deep, okay? It inspires a lot of fear in first century people. You talk about the deep. New Testament, prince of the power of the air. So I'm just naming a few of them here. There's more. But this gives us an idea of some of the landscape of, of who these powers are. And to, to try to define them is, is hard because they are personal beings many times. But they're super earthly beings, okay? They're super earthly beings and they're forces which manifest themselves in very concrete ways on earth. Another way to say this is that creation has a visible foreground, which is the one that we encounter many times with our senses, but there's there's more to it than that. There's more to creation than just the visible foreground. There's tied to that visible foreground and bound up with it and dependent on it, there's an invisible background, okay? And when we're talking about the powers, we're talking about something that's, that's trans-earthly, but we don't gain an awareness of these things just by detaching ourselves, um, by by closing our senses down, or by by just kind of staring with some kind of inward sense into the heavens. They're, they're, they're manifesting themselves. They're, they're always tied together. So you see the powers being manifest, and this is really critical, they're being manifest in, in economic systems, in governments, in politics, in human practices, and institutions. And uh, part of what I'd suggest is that when we become experienced and skilled at reading the powers, we're going to be seeing them in places as mundane and as simple as uh, the shopping mall in the arena and what's celebrated there. There's a manifestation of some kinds of powers going on there in the sorority house or in the lecture hall at college. You could even say that we participate in the liturgies of certain powers when we're there just kind of mindlessly scrolling with our smartphones. There's something going on there that's that's got an invisible backdrop to it. That's what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, can I just powers. make some observations there? Maybe some follow-up questions. First observation is I like the way you bring that Old Testament language in. It, it broadens my sense of principalities and powers because, you know, that specific principalities language, I think, okay, these are these complicated passages in Paul where he's talking about Christ being head over everything and so on. Um, and that's helpful to at least see if there's a connection with these things in the Old Testament, which are also hard for us to understand. The sons of God, Satan taking his place in the divine council, Rahab and Leviathan. That's significant. I'm glad you pointed it out because some of the clearest places where the language is used and maybe where it's most refined and consistently used is is in the writings of Paul in the New Testament. There's other New Testament writers that are grappling in some of the same categories, but they're, they're not as consistent in their use maybe. But Paul too is speaking into a real context. He has a certain vocabulary because he belongs to the Jewish community and he's drawing on this rich heritage of Old Testament tradition and scripture that he has access to as well. And, 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 and he's reflecting on on that and he's saying Christ is preeminent over these things. But you, when you when you broaden the category out a little bit, you start to incorporate powers that have come before as well, not not just focus only on what Paul said. Yeah, that is very helpful. Another observation is this sounds like sociology. And what I'm thinking there is you're describing behavior, patterns of behavior, how groups interact in ways that are much bigger than individuals. Sociologists study this, they talk about economics and politics. Um, with various theories. 
But then you're also emphasizing that it's not just the dynamics of human groups. There's bigger powers that are manifesting themselves through these very human things like economics and politics and, I guess, building shopping malls. <laughs> well, it, this is really important. The The tendency can be, and this is a caution you have, you have to address when you're talking about the powers, the, the tendency can be to, to quick, too quickly uh, mythologize them. And, and I'm just meaning there, like, all these, some guys like Boltmann, say, in the, the early 20th century, who they're, they're mythologizing a lot of what's happening in Scripture, and they're talking about even the resurrection as being some kind of spiritual event. There's, there's a danger in that. And because of that, the, the, the way we most, I think, consistently talk about the powers and the way it's most faithful to Scripture is that they're manifesting themselves. There's super earthly forces that are manifesting themselves. And we can discern some of how that works, I think, in these realms of sociology and things, helpful tools. But you've got to recognize there's something else going on kind of behind the backdrop as well. So we can't we can't lose that connection. But I would say too that some of the tools of things like sociology can be helpful in at least helping us to tease out a little bit what are the real powers behind some of the the spectacles of the shopping mall or the the sorority house that are playing out in front of us. But they're not exactly the same thing. Yeah. So one of the things that you wanted to emphasize here, um, which was not actually in my notes, but I'm going to put the question there because I know you want to emphasize it, is what does the victory of Christ over the powers. Yeah, give us a little context for how Christ defeats the powers or even what that means just to claim that reality. So you see in the Old Testament where there's they're introduced and they have these names and you're you're recognizing there's something there's something in the heavens that's tied in with earth and the events in the heavens organize and uh, manifest themselves in certain things on the on the earth and that that culminates when these powers or two premier powers manifest themselves through Israel and Rome to execute Jesus, okay? Uh, so there's something more, and, and, and this is clear, there's something more here than just Jewish authorities and Romans conspiring. There's actually spiritual forces and realities at work which manifest themselves in certain ways. But on the other side of Easter, and especially with Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, what we realize as we're kind of standing alongside the, uh, the, the writers of Scripture, we realize that these powers are brought into subjection to Christ. And that's because they, they, they weren't able to kill him. <laughs> they weren't able to keep him in the grave. So it could develop kind of like this. You, you say that you know, powers are created things. They're, they're created like us, like the rest of creation, but that some of these powers in their thirst for dominance and in their, their, their lust to control things, they, they missed the deeper wisdom of God. Um, and they work together with their human allies to eliminate the stronger man, who kind of Jesus is self-referentially talking about himself. He's the stronger man. And what they thought to be their triumph in executing Jesus was actually their undoing. And now Christ has just drugged them out into the open and he's made an open spectacle out of them, which is that the language that uh, Paul uses, this kind of processional language that, uh, uh, that would refer many times to like a Roman general who's taking a train of captives out. But this is a cosmic one. He took captivity captive and he's making the show and he's giving out gifts to mankind. This is, this is the show of Jesus just dragging them out into the open and making a spectacle of the powers. 
what's significant too or important to remember is that although Christ has he's been victorious over them, uh, he's put them into subjection to him, they still exist, they're still in operation, and some of them are still fallen, and others are completely in their subjection, but they all are accountable to Christ, okay? It's like Hebrews puts it, uh, Hebrews 2, I think, now in putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, uh, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It sounds almost like he's saying two things. They are in subjection. Maybe you could clarify by saying, and this is probably murdering it, but uh, they're, they're all accountable to him. They will answer to him. They find their fruition when they're aligned with him. But we just realize in human events, as they play out like they often do, not all the powers are yet fully in subjection to him. So it's like D-Day's happened, but... Uh, Germany hasn't fallen yet. Yeah, I like that kind of classic metaphor there of D-Day, the decisive the decisive move has been made, but there still is a time when powers and individual people can exist um, in rebellion against the king. But one thing I can't help interjecting here is you talked about Jesus giving out gifts because of conquering the powers. Um, and that just triggers me to think about how in the New Testament, the whole language of ascension is not just Jesus going up to heaven, although it is that, um, but it's very much ascending to the throne as king. And then that is why the Holy Spirit, which is the the main gift, can be given because of that victory and kingship. And then along with that, all of the manifestations of the Spirit in spiritual gifts Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just describing some of what we say when we say alongside with Paul, as he just says so often, we're in Christ. That's, that's, our, that's our position. And the position of the church is somehow one that is in the heavenlies with Christ or in Christ. So there's some ways in which our identities begin to interpenetrate and interface with each other. Clearly, that's, what's, that's a position that we experience now. It's also something we wait the full fruition of. Uh, I, I would say that to be, to be an Anabaptist is not to try to postpone quite everything into the eschaton that's coming. We want, we want to take of that what we can and experience it here. That's what we're known for. Uh, we're very eager to realize as much eschatology now as we can, and that's a real strength. I, I think we'll say a little bit later on, too, sometimes that can be a weakness. But there's, 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 there's something going on there. It's a dynamic that we never fully resolve. We're in Christ, yes, and there's this already that's happened where the powers have been taken uh, and Christ has been revealed to be the strong man over them and we're gloating in that and we're living in that. But we realize, too, we don't get the, uh, we don't get the fullness of it quite yet. Yeah, and there's something about that that just, in my mind, makes the gospel and our lives so much richer. Um, and I came across it working through Ephesians um, for a Sunday school class, but this transformation from being under the prince of the power of the air, controlled by the powers, along with that dead, um, to being raised with Christ, seated with Christ, and thus in some way, you know, also over the prince of the power of the air because (laughs) sharing with Christ, that's just a really good, exciting picture. It is, yeah. And, and the, some of the securing for me anyway is that that's a reality that exists apart from me. It's in Christ, and that's where the hope is. 
I, I get some experience of that. I get to live into that reality, but it's something that pre-exists me. That's part of what the faith of the Christian life is, is saying this is the truest identity I have is one which is hidden in Christ. It'll be fully revealed. And for now, we actually get to kind of have the first fruits of that. Before we move on, I do want to talk a little bit about why I think this is so hard for us to really get a hold of. Now, I'll just suggest this in line with what I what I said in the article about us living in secular times. There's a lot of interest among Christian scholars right now to understand and kind of diagnose and help Christians to help us appreciate the kinds of times that we're living in. And there's a lot of consensus that the times that we're living in, well, they, they just make it really difficult for us to... Uh, to fully appreciate, say, our identity in Christ, to appreciate the backdrop that's happening behind the scenes in this super earthly or supernatural realm. Uh, what I'm just going to suggest here is that the, the really tidy categories we tend to work in of natural, supernatural, or spiritual, physical, these tidy categories, and they're often seen in tension with each other, these categories are basically alien to the biblical worldview, uh, and they're relatively recent innovations. Okay, there are these interventions. There's these inventions that were used to sanitize the world of what was seen as superstition. Okay, that's simplified, but that's that's it in a nutshell. And that biblical interpretation, when it uh, follows that bent towards sanitizing things, has tended to make the Bible into this collection of tidy collections of rational and very calm, uh, true but rational and very calm statements about religious faith. But what I'm suggesting here is that in the biblical world, natural and supernatural are intertwined into a single world. The natural and the supernatural are not the same thing, but they're constantly interacting. And this makes, in my mind, it makes the biblical world, and especially the world of the powers, it makes it, it makes it fantastic. It's, it's beautiful. It's dangerous. And uh, from our perspective as, as late moderns, it's also just a little bit strange. But it's, it's interesting to me, and it's encouraging that uh, something like the powers is getting serious theological attention. You're looking at authors like uh, C.B. Card, uh, the Mennonite, John Howard Yoder, James McClendon would be another one I'd mentioned. He gives he gives and develops what we talk about the powers in some really significant ways that I found just tremendously helpful. Good stuff. Yeah, let's talk about Anabaptist history because after all, you're also trying to use this as a lens to help us understand Anabaptist history and maybe what that heritage means now. Um, and so, one of those pieces is you say that the Anabaptists have this impulse to stand naked against the powers. Unpack that one a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just say this really strongly and then nuance it. The Anabaptist people, and I'm a committed Mennonite, so I get this and I'm committed to it, um, but we, we have we have an allergy toward mediation. I'll say it that way. And, and it's well-placed. The, the Anabaptists as a people were conceived in a time when there were strong powers manifest in Roman Catholicism and also in its, its kind of collaboration with the state and the coercive powers of the state. You can call it by a lot of things. Uh, Constantinianism, there's the magisterium, uh, however you want to approach it. But there's a strong alliance between state authority and ecclesial authority. And because of that, I'd say they're identifying powers. And these powers 
are being called into question during the time of the Reformation. So part of what it is meant to be an Anabaptist is to to carry forward a suspicion of powers of any sort. I I just suggest again that we tend to be suspicious of mediating structures of any kind because of their potential to align with demonic power. And when they do that, they're just manifesting demonic power. So there's there's a strong suspicion there. And and I I think that just comes from from where we came from, from our genesis as a people. So back to the 1500s and the Reformation, some of that played out almost in the nature of the Anabaptist movement as a voluntary church, um, getting rid of coercion, because unlike the magisterial Reformation, the main Protestant Reformation, Anabaptists were not trying to fix the Catholic Church, and they weren't trying to fix the governments around them. They're basically saying, we need to pull away from all of those. The government is, it's a power under God, but it's outside the perfection of Christ. And of course, their statements about the churches of the day were even more harsh. Um, And you're saying that has carried forward to where institutions, even our own Mennonite church groups or conferences become suspect as being problematic in the same way. Is that fair? I think that is. It's what um, I think, was it Snyder? I can't pull up the name now. It's it's what one Mennonite historian has just characterized as Anabaptists' internal disequilibria. Um, just a fancy way of saying it's this is where this is where we can tend to. It's it's a dynamic internal to who to, to Mennonite identity that's that's both an asset, but it can also be one of the weaknesses where there's just constantly this questioning, this calling out of the powers and a leeriness of anything that's suspected. Of, of elevating itself too highly. So it, it can be, it can be again, a, a very strong thing, but there's, there's some limitations built in there too. But I, I think it's a carry on from, a carry on from some of our genesis, our beginnings here in, in the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So then when we're thinking about powers and the powers manifesting themselves in our world, it's not just strictly evil things. I know you've said this before. It's not just strictly evil things. It's not necessarily demonic things, um, but it's even simpler things like our church structures, our networks. Um, these are much smaller scale powers than a nation state like the United States of America, but some of those dynamics are still at work. Most of us know all too well that anytime you have a group of people organized around something, that can also do damage. This this is where people come out of different places. There's there are some folks who take a more oh they, they tend to tend to reject the powers or characterize anything speaking to the powers as being fallen and therefore corrupted and therefore demonic. I I'd, I'd suggest that the the powers, even though apart from Christ, they don't know their perfection in Christ, because I can't do any better than than how Paul puts it in Colossians. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by or through him and for him. Okay, so we have that, that picture of, of Christ through his ascension becoming both the source at creation, but also the destination and the hope of the powers. And they're all going to be eventually accountable to him. But like I said, they're, they're, they're still there. They still exist. So there is some ambiguity here, and I acknowledge that, where outside the perfection of Christ, 
a power ought to be brought toward the perfection of Christ, but they haven't just been evaporated. Okay, we're in Christ, but we're not Christ. The, the powers are answerable to Christ, but they are not Christ. So I would suggest that when we encounter powers, some of them need to be exposed and drug into the open for the for the idolatrous things they have. And, and our culture is full of these lesser idols, the powers that have been corrupted and they need to be exposed for what they are. So you think of the pornographic, you think of ideologies that can even act as counterfeits to Christ. You think of the power of certain economic systems. I won't name any names. We'll just say any totalizing capital or capitalistic or communistic system, whichever one, take your pick. Anything that takes that stance needs to be exposed for what it is as pretentious. But part of the Christian task here is to recognize that all of our practices, all of our thinking, all of our structures participate in the powers. And they ultimately answer to Christ, and we are to steward them toward Christ, okay? So I don't think that we can just outright reject them. And if you try to do that, you're exercising its own form of power, probably the more dangerous kind, because it's just unexamined then. But we do need to bring our structures, our ideologies, our practices under the discernment of Christ and, and just ask ourselves, is there some way that I can exercise my little dominion as an image bearer here to bring this more under the dominion of Christ? But um, I would just suggest from history that some of the some of the movements that have tried to live as though there's no mediating powers, those are the ones that tend to have the most unexamined powers and, and many times the most, uh, at least the most um, hmm, destabilized and sometimes very dangerous and idolatrous. Yeah, so that is the warning that you close the piece out with, as I understand it, is that part of our impulse to to think we're kind of defying the powers and just living for Jesus by going against structures, whether those be church structures, whether they're, you know, community structures that give guidance or whatever, ends up with the unexamined power, by which you mean kind of the force of personality or the force of certain ideas or whatever, rather than institutions, and that that becomes, at the very least, an equal danger. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. And, and there's, I'll just mention here that you know, part of the task of doing theology here is is taking up the gains of those who have come before us. We're, we're casting an eye to the situation that's presenting us now and, and some of the history that's happened along the way. So I've got an eye in the past. I've got an eye in the present. And then we've got, I've, I've just got a third eye. We've got this other eye kind of toward the future. And you're trying to cast vision. That's that's some of the task of theology. So you're you're doing work that's that's observing who people have been and who you admire and, and you, who you see as credible in, in history. But there's also this present situation we're living in. And here, I'm just I'm just giving a, a little bit of caution or reservation um, toward the, the really radical individualism that's just rampant these days. And I'm just recognizing that that itself is is its own form of power although it postures as something that is kind of operating in this vacant space of value-free kind of, you know, I, I just got my own interests. To go. This is this is a liberal democracy at its best. Um, it's, it's still answering to powers is what I'm suggesting. And so rather than just rejecting, as is kind of so popular today, rejecting certain powers 
that are manifesting themselves in structures, um, that are manifesting themselves in stuff like practices, and then saying, well, you know, I'm just going to just love Jesus instead. I'd be suggesting, and this is what a theologian would do, that that's answering to certain powers too. And you've got to call those into question. There is no power-free space from which we can live our lives. Yeah, I think that is helpful. And I would note too that, you know, in my growing up years, I very often heard strong warnings about individualism in the kind of Mennonite circles that I was in. So we may be vulnerable to individualism because of distrusting powers, but we've also developed a sense of brotherhood and procedures and so on that at least serves as a little bit of internal conscience in our people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm thinking I want to qualify something I said. I said there's no power-free space. Maybe what I should say there is that I think there are some spaces, and I like what you're saying, that part of the value of having a community. So you see what the Anabaptists did. They formed communities. Okay, and they formed communities in which there were there were certain practices peculiar to those communities where I think you can observe a certain kind of power being exerted, which is just consistent with who Jesus is. Okay, so there is always power being exerted. I'm just suggesting that you can sometimes notice alignment to a greater degree with who with who Jesus is with an identity in Christ and sometimes less. But there, that's that's the value of the history here. So don't just spurn it too quickly, is maybe what I'm saying. Okay, then just to kind of cap off our conversation here, draw attention to one more major theme from your essay, and that is that to really understand the Anabaptists, and especially what we should take up from their legacy, perhaps the most important thing is just to be able to see Jesus as Lord over the powers in the way that they did. And course, your suggestion along with that is that we've lost a lot of their perspective. So maybe just a few final comments on that. And this ties back to some of what we said earlier about the age that we're living in. Um, I'm recognizing that in the past 500 years, since the beginnings of Anabaptism, there's been additional things have changed. (laughs) Christendom is no longer. And with that has come a loss of certain assumptions about how the world is operated. I think because of that, when we go back and we, we, we try to examine the Anabaptists, the early Anabaptists, when we take seriously what we have to learn or what we've been talking about here with the powers and the principalities, one thing that helps us to do is just to help us to understand why it is they acted the way they did. They're responding and calling out and reproaching certain powerful structures, certain powerful ideologies and theological and ecclesial and state-funded kinds of ideologies and things. They're calling them out and reproaching them, and they're, they're identifying certain powerful forces behind them. And then they're constructing as an alternative to this, and there depends where you fall in, but they're, they're constructing these communities which themselves are in Christ— And as best as they know how, they're a living reproach to the cosmic powers. And there's tendencies which come with that. Sometimes they're they're hopelessly uh, utopian, okay? Sometimes there's a kind of apocalyptic zeal which just takes over, like what you see happening at Munster. But they are all trying to live in a way which answers to the powers reproaches those which are under demonic influences and lives into the identity in Christ. So that's one thing that uh, it just helps us to understand why did they act the way they did. They didn't sit down and say, here's the Anabaptist vision. 
Sorry, Bender. Um, they didn't hammer that stuff out because they didn't need to. Okay, they already had a certain worldview. The second thing I'd suggest is that this, when we understand or work with the powers, we're also exploring some of the things that they took for granted, things that were just patently obvious to them, which are not quite so obvious to us anymore. So, again, it's just recognizing that the situation we have is different than the one that they have, and the things that they had in common with their culture, we've since lost touch with. So part of the work that we have today on this side of the, the fall of Christendom and a post-Christian culture, part of our work is filling in what they just didn't feel a need to tell us, because for them it was obvious. Uh, and this helps us to explore that. But I, I would say, and this is, this is what I'll conclude with, I think, is just I want to be clear that I, I don't think they would advise us to become nostalgic about their times. The purpose as we do this work isn't just to get back to them. Okay, we've learned as a people some things, and a lot has changed in 500 years. So this is not just a project of repristinement uh, where we get nostalgic about some perfect era or something. I suspect that what they bid us to do is to pay attention to the times that are actually our own and to celebrate Christ's victory over the powers where we see it as both our legacy and in our future and in the times that we have, and to call into question places where we don't, okay? So like I emphasized, I think this is where the continuity is. It's, it's not in some, in some kind of repristinement. It's actually in Christ, and it's in Christ's victory over the powers. And this is what they're going to be gesturing us to actually look at. Like, don't look at us. Look at Christ. Look at his victory. And this is what's going to animate our communities in the future, I'm hoping. I'll just give that a hearty amen. So thank you, Kyle. And again, remind you as our listeners, um, this is sort of a special episode, a conversation around an essay published on our blog. Um, you can find the full text of Seeking Better Vision on our blog. Um, you can also listen to it um, narrated by a voice talent, kind of audiobook style. Um, we are releasing these essays as podcasts, and that is on a separate podcast channel, Essays for King Jesus, which should be something you can subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.